BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Courage or Cringe, featuring Black wine culture advocate, filmmaker, onophile, and founder of Uncorked and Cultured, Angela McRae. Today in Courage or Cringe, we tackle Kamala's Israel controversy, Pitbull takes on American critics, and Playboy's Gay Man cover debut. So, Angela, did your Facebook go down yesterday, like everybody else? Oh, yeah. Yep. I didn't even realize it until like an hour before it came back. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> it either. I'm like one of the few people. Although, everything went down, right? Is, is Instagram yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I'm obviously much worse than you guys, because I realized it immediately. Uh, <laughs> and I, across across the board, right? Because um, even on WhatsApp... Um, mm-hmm. It was funny because my point of where I realized it right away is I was trying to call my daughter and I, it wasn't on, uh, and I called her on video all the time using WhatsApp and it's just, um, it wasn't working. So that was the first thing, kind of like the first sign that was like, what's, what's going on here? And uh, then kind of saw it across the board. Did you, did you, did you see the net uh, drop in Mark Zuckerberg's personal uh, wealth yesterday? <laughs> did you see that? Uh, I read the article. Not, no, no, Six did not. billion with a B. Six billion dollars? Yeah. Just in what was the stock money. price uh, drop? What's like, the percentage? It was like five percent, some crazy percent. It was so like just a, think about it that way, right? Well, just think about how wealthy he is. The fact that five percent drop in the stock means a six billion drop in his wealth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we think of six billion. I'm thinking about the other, right? <laughs> right. The, the rest of that, of that number that really is uh, how wealthy this guy actually is. Just give me a six with one less zero. I'm happy. And, what about you, Angela? Same, but you know the craziest part is he's going to make that money back. Oh, and for it's sure not, he is. That's my and point. And it's not even have no impact on him at all. And he's well, just this, like, oh, that's my the point. Stocks. The six billion makes no impact on him whatsoever. And that's the that's the crazy thing about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. he probably is, he probably already got more. it. He probably already got it back this afternoon. I'm sure there was a bunch of people going in and buying stock immediately. That's oh, yeah. true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. As yeah. opposed to building their own platforms, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reality because when <laughs> you see it, right, they're like, this is at a discount. Yeah. And you know what? From a financial standpoint, it's probably not a bad idea. Angela, I think it should. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Bring your bring bring your gain down just a little a little bit for me. Yeah, because it was okay. it was kind of it was kind of crackling a little bit. All right, how about now? That's that's good. Sorry to interrupt the flow. Go ahead, Jesus. What were you saying? I don't know. Well, what, <laughs> Angela, <laughs> I already forgot. Angela was saying. I was going to say, 
We can, you know, we could be taking that money instead of buying discounted Facebook stock is investing in another platform that can, there you, you know, because I don't know, the whistleblower article was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, there, well, the there's the minutes. article. There is, I was actually uh, just reading on that right now. On. There were, um, uh, she is in front of Congress, right? Uh, speaking to them right now. So she's being deposed, which is really, really interesting. Uh, I love that. Did you guys see the quote from Facebook as it relates responding to her commenting? No, but I, what I want to understand is can what is the organization inside of Facebook that contends with all, you know, they've got to have some team internally that's like, and they have some crazy code name, like that's dealing with all of the stuff that they've been under fire with in the last oh, yeah, yeah. few yeah, months for sure i mean it's yeah. not just one thing it's like 12 things it's not but th- but this is a really big one like yeah. this is the biggest one right especially having yeah. someone that is that was within the organization that can speak to the product uh knowledgeably and, and and really be able to connect the dots for people i think the biggest issue is not so much that we know that it impacts young people we've seen that you know yeah. we, we think about the the social experiment right the the, the documentary oh uh, with mm-hmm. the prison thing no, no, no. No, the not, social not, dilemma. The, oh, social, the social dilemma. dilemma. Thank yeah, you, the yeah, social yeah, dilemma, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you literally see a correlation between when, like, mobile and social platform launched, oh, and yeah. then, you know, people, uh, teens specifically, with sure. suicide, et cetera, and depression. Yep. So you see all that. I think the biggest issue that came out is how much they knew oh, yeah. and didn't disclose. I think that, out of everything, is the one that's going to probably be the most damning thing for them. For sure. Knowing this information and then not sharing it. Angela, you see that one? Yeah, I saw that one. It changed my life. I mean, it changed my whole perspective of it. And just to the point about about that special group, that special kind of team within the company, she was a part of one of those special teams that got dismantled shortly yeah. after the presidency. The, but right, right their, before their group was right, their group is was very focused on specifically, uh, you know, trying to avoid um, basically influence from other other political parties, right, uh, outside mm-hmm. of the country, uh, into the elections. Company, yeah, um, and. Uh, it is interesting, right? You know, what I find really interesting here is I'm hearing a lot of people jumping on Facebook saying we need more regulation and we need to do something about it. What I don't think people fully understand, especially all of those that are sitting in the camp saying that we need to have treat Facebook much more as a utility, that we don't want to restrict anyone's voice, is that she's saying kind of the opposite, right? Her point of view is like, no, 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 we're being irresponsible by actually showing content that we know is false, that creates more engagement. So... I think we're going to, right now, everyone's on the same page, but pretty quickly here, what's going to happen really quickly, like, well, wait a minute, do you mean we need more regulation, more restriction? We need to censor things more? Like, because that's, I think at the end of the day, what she's, where her mind's probably much more at. Yeah. And I think that's the point where obviously you're going to see a big deviation of where people are with this, with this issue, because right now everyone's jumping on the bandwagon of, yes, more regulation. And I think the part where people could agree with is regulation relates to how young people are. I think that's the point where they're going to focus on, not mm-hmm. regulation relates to what content is what drives the most engagement because the argument that she's making is the more content is controversial, the more it could a- activate anger, the better off it is for the platform. And the reality is the kind of content that we know is that people are going to be on one side or the other, whether they want to see more of it or less of it. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting that in 2011, I don't know if you guys remember when Google went dark because of the FCC law that was going into Congress, they were voting on um, to pretty much have regulations on Google and all these different um, online platforms. Um, I forget what the name of it was, but at the time I was working in content protection. So the Mm. whole intention was to, you know, have regulations in place to protect, you know, content creators primarily, you know, I was working at NBC universal. So of course they had a lot that, you know, there's a lot of content that gets infringed on 
to ensure that people aren't using the internet malicely and like illegally and things right. like that. And this is stuff that was work, being worked on for months. Google did a two day <laughs> going black or something like that. Like they went black. Wikipedia participated. It was like all everything that we were using at the time participated. And unfortunately that law and that conversation ended right there because of the power yeah. that they have. And that's oh, kind of like so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, industries and corporations were trying to be preemptive, you know, to try to acknowledge like, look, this is an issue. It can escalate really quickly just from, you know, of course their bottom line, right. There's yeah. right, special right. interest, but that was their, the first step. And it got like literally deaded in just two days of just Google going black. Have you seen anything, Angela, as it relates to what just happened with Facebook going down where people may be thinking as a theory that this was a way for Facebook to kind of actually like flex their muscle saying, oh, really? You're going to mess with us? How, how, do you, how do you deal without us around? What do you think mm. of that? Interesting. Consp- I've never thought about theory. that. I think what you just mentioned is such a really, really interesting point because I bet there Anything's was a lot possible. of... For all the issues that we everyone has with Facebook, you know, there was a little bit of a panic. All of a sudden, Facebook, Instagram, you know, WhatsApp, all going down. I can't communicate. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you've heard the show before, Angela, you know that Jesus and I have an, you know, an, an, endless, an eternal battle between, you know, different, different uh, you know, points of view as it relates to this. And maybe we don't even have necessarily each of us a firm position on it, but we know that it has to be one or the other. And that is that either... There's deeper regulation of these things or this kind of idea of them being a, a kind of a publisher that is free to have whatever point of view that they want, right? But the fact that they, that it resides kind of in this interim position where it's it, it sort of has perspective but yet it's available to everybody and has this kind of utility stance is what makes it such a tricky discussion to have. Because at this point, all these platforms to me are like electricity. They're just everywhere. Yeah. Like it's hard mm-hmm. to just go, oh, we're going to stop doing or allowing X. It's almost a different thing at that point. No, I totally agree. I mean, I was – literally I was getting ready to make the point to Jesus, to Jesus where, you know, Facebook – went black for what, six hours, however many hours it was. Yeah. How many people invested in ads? How many people had campaigns well, yeah. or launches that, about are that super time sensitive? And oh, what's yeah. the what's the repercussion now? So is Facebook gonna pay these people or pay these businesses? Are these small business entrepreneurs who put in a lot of money into a campaign that may only be a, a week long and that one day that really during those peak hours truly had huge impact on their business and their bottom line? Like What's the fail safe for that for those type of businesses? You know that well, rely rely on that. You know, Angela, my my point is actually the opposite of, of what you just made in the sense that by doing that, if I want to be conspiracy theorist, right? I'm usually not the conspiracy, but let's let's say I'm going down that route this time. Is that Facebook very clearly points to the to the issue that hey, you may agree or disagree with some of the practices that we have, but at the end of the day, the level of engagement that we're driving, how critical we are to the overall ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. It's so important that like you can't mess with us too much because we also have the ability to kind of shut some of these things down if need be. And it has a massive impact. That's the first thing I thought about. Like, man, if we were launching a campaign yesterday, it would have been like, you know, everything hit the fan. And what do you do at that point? Nothing. And so many companies are relying on them, right? And this whole thing about what you want to regulate, the reality is are platforms that are optimized for engagement. Because so that, that to me that's kind of the big issue is that if you want to say you're going to regulate or not regulate, then you really have to change the dynamic of what the platform is on. Yeah, they don't to, that optimize has to for be, engagement. That has to be part of the discussion. Is, be, is changing what the what how these things are constructed. And be built. like early day Twitter, right? Early day Twitter is literally whatever posted next is what you saw. There was no ranking for people were resharing, et cetera. Like that that could be the same thing for Facebook. 
It's a very different dynamic, a very different model. I think it completely changes publishers using Facebook at all for distribution, right? It changes the kind of content you create. It changes kind of the whole thing. So you almost have to like redo the companies. I mean, that's why for me, I have a hard time simply thinking like, think of it as electricity with the current version of companies. Unless it's a completely different thing. Yeah. Which, which I, I don't know. With them thinking I don't know what that, that would be other than looking like a, mm-hmm. more like a newspaper. And if that's the case, I, I don't know if that, if that business survives. And the thing we all have to realize is that this guy, Mark Zuckerberg, created this when he was in college to rate women. And that's right. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Here we that are was the today. idea. The idea was to rate women. Right. A primal insight. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we'd love to say and that it's gone better since then. Uh, yeah, it sounded like it actually went downward. Yeah, I was like, going to say, it's like, kind of gone downhill since then. That was the peak of, uh, of social mola- uh, uh, morality. Uh, which was that? How terrible is that, right? I mean, clearly it was it was based on, you know, not the most strongest values. Sure. Yeah. That's a, yeah. very, good, that's a so, very good point. The responsibility that's being taken, you know, and what we are noticing now, it's very self-interested, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and self-referential, it's, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, kind of right, a fruit right. fruit of the poison tree argument. I like that, Angela. We're getting started off in the fruit right of the way. poison tree. Right? I like that. You know, my argument, wow. by, my argument, by the way, is always just to give all of the money to uncorked and cultured. That's my, uh, that's my, uh, um, okay. my, my position. <laughs> You know, we normally don't do, um, as you know, a little bit about the show, right, Angela? We don't do like typical when we bring guests on board. It's to play cult, uh, Courage or Cringe, which we will do, and we're going to have some mm-hmm. fun doing it. But we don't do the whole like interview part, you know, what's your favorite color and all this other stuff that you see a lot out there. But in the case of what you're doing, what you're doing is actually super interesting. And I don't, I can't imagine a lot of people actually know even about this intersection of black culture and wine to begin with. So I actually did want to ask you a little bit about that just, you know, as a, as a, as a frame of reference for people to know the kind of thing that you're building, right? Thank you. Tell us about Thank it. You. Well, you know, Uncorked and Cultured, it started literally as a community on Facebook, just, you know, connecting with black people that drink wine, that drink wine, you know. And from there, I really quickly learned that there's a huge undercurrent of black wine professionals, black wine entrepreneurs, and the but your huge gap from the wine industry really engaging, providing opportunities, amplifying, and most importantly, marketing to the black consumers. Mm. And so, you know, when you look at the the wine industry, it's a seventy five billion dollar industry, the old one of the oldest industries in the world. It, and it's got to have popped off in COVID. I mean, I it has to have gone oh, yes. up. Oh COVID. yeah, Are you kidding me? Yes, that's what got us through I'm, it. Yes, wine direct direct to consumer DTC mm-hmm. direct to consumer increased exponentially, and especially for people of color, right? Because if you think about wine, the wine industry here in the United States and just all over the world, it's dynasties, it's mm. multi generational families. They've they've been doing it for five six generations for a lot of them, and they have really deep roots sure. on a global scale, right? And even deeper in Europe, right? I mean, I, actually, I just came across this stat the other day. What was it? It was um, one of the oldest family-owned businesses in the history of the world is a, like a thousand-year-old company from Europe that is a winemaker, a thousand years old. Yes, yes, yep. I mean, they were people were making wine in like the 1500s, you know, oh, before sure. then. Oh, you yeah. know, um, I think the, the earliest proof of 
wine fermenting grapes, you know, for wine consumption. Of course, we know Egypt has it, but I think it was in Asia where they actually have proof of it, you know? It was, yeah. It was actually in East, in sort of like uh, Eastern, what is now Eastern Europe. It was in the country mm-hmm. of Georgia, if I recall correctly, where, where the sort of origins of, uh, of wine, of wine really? you know, came mm-hmm. from. Yeah, it's, cool. it's like an mm-hmm. Asian uh, deal, but uh, I guess exactly. there's a climate there. Yeah, I mean Georgian wines are amazing, especially the natural wines. We mm. sell. I work at a wine shop as well, just to kind of be immersed in it. And so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I do enjoy a good Georgian wine. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So break this down for me though, Angela, because you and I talked a little bit about this. But again, for the uninitiated, I love wine. Jesus likes wine too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously Angela loves wine. But like, what what is it about? Um, black culture or what has historically not happened or happened too much or what are the circumstances around the black community at least historically not having the type of regard maybe or at least from the outside looking in the kind of regard for this like break that down for, for okay, us okay when you just think about black culture and you think about consumerism right mm. one of the things that we all know is the exploitation right it's like you have a culture that's created by a community, whether it's black, whether it's indigenous, you know, Asian or what have you. And, you know, corporations use that for selling, you know, for selling or for creating a a message or language or creating cool factor or like cultural, you know, uh, capital Mm -hmm. to that effect. And so when you think about the wine industry and you think about the story of like Cristal and you think about, you know, Moet and you think about Hennessy, you think about all these, you even think about Tommy Hilfiger. Yeah. You think, even when you think about like the fashion industry, you think about how the music and how the culture talks about it and sales grow, but these industries completely don't acknowledge it. They don't, they don't even respect the, the people that are putting, you know, millions of dollars in their pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't even recognize it. And then now, you know, oh, you know, after I think 2001, I, I'm going to say 2001 to me was a breaking point when it came to like black culture, consumerism and consumerism and capitalism. Right. Because that's when Jay-Z became mainstream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I might be off a couple a year or two. Right. But, you know, I was in the midst of it because I was in college in 2001. So, okay. so, and I've thought about this quite a bit. And when you think about 2001, you know, hip hop became mainstream, right? Hip hop became mainstream. People it started getting out of the hood and getting out of the local, you know, inner city radio stations and started literally going into middle of America where any and everybody was listening to it in large scales, right? It, it, it changed the trajectory of what is American. And, now you see people like Rick Ross, who has, you know, Bel Air, which is, you know, a, a sparkling wine, you know, company. And some of the articles that's been, you know, published in GQ and other kind of like general market, you know, magazines. And they talk about the regard of the cultural impact that he has is super lowbrow. Like, it's not even like he's a wine connoisseur. He, you know, it's not even, you know acknowledging like his genius behind it instead it just reduces it to from cocaine to wine literally in an article in gq that was what? published back in 2016 mm-hmm. there was references of cocaine it was references of his new wine and just how his you know his lifestyle has evolved and how you know and it's just when you think about some of those things you know and you talk to like black wine professionals about it they're like of course yeah we know whatever we don't we don't acknowledge it. We don't give it energy, right? But when you look at it from the bigger scale, you think about the readers of those 
of those uh, magazines. When you think about wine distributors, or if you think about the people that actually have power in that industry, then that means that they that doesn't help them value the black consumer. Yeah, right? absolutely. Well, the whole ecosystem seems kind of closed off to it. It sort of seems set against it in a way. Exactly. But I'll tell you something that just happened that's interesting. So last summer during the George Floyd, you know, and Black Lives Movement and the uprising that happened here in America, there was a huge, huge call to action in the wine industry by black wine professionals and other uh, just people of color literally demanding some action and demanding the wine industry speak out about it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been scholarships that's been formed, you know, a lot of money being raised for nonprofits, um, you know, deals being made like McBride Sisters, you know, their their sales, their direct to consumer sales skyrocketed. Um, Lafette um, Rosé, which is by Danae Burston, who's a black uh, wine brand owner. Um, his wine is from St. Tropez. He just got a, a huge deal with Constellation Brands. You know, oh, you yeah. start now these opportunities are starting to open up. But it took that. It took that for one courage from these individuals to write letters, you know, open letters to the industry to, you know, start organizations, you know, to really, you know, put put the um, put make these organizations put their and these corporations put their money where their mouths are. Yeah. Where do you peg something like 19 crimes in the in the landscape of the things you just described? We're talking about this, Angela. <laughs> we sure were talking since, about since, this. <laughs> since, you wanted, since, since the game we're going to play is called uh, Courage or Cringe, I thought I'd start with that one right off the gate. I went on my round last time, Angela. Please go ahead. Yes. Set him Before straight. jump in there. So first of all, have any of you guys even tried, to, yes. tried it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's, why, that's the reason I went on a rant. <laughs> So 19 Crimes is an interesting company, right? I mean, they have this whole line of like wine that talks about, it glorifies America's crime, like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. crime history. Yeah, the whole mob scene and all that other stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so they released California Red or Cali Red, and they have a Cali Rose with Snoop Dogg on the cover, on the mm-hmm. face. So he's the face of it. And, um, you know, my first response to that is, you know, Snoop Dogg, he doesn't, I don't think he turns down a check. <laughs> <laughs> The man is active. He is prolific in the branding world. Uh, globally. Yeah. Globally. So I think for me, you know, I'm going to go with cringe uh, yeah. only because <laughs> it's too sweet for my palate and it fits into the stereotype of black people drink sweet wine, which is not mm-hmm. the case. You know, I think people who are new to wine drink sweet wine no matter where they're from. That's interesting. Jesus, I think, would concur with your general assessment. There, oh, Angela. yeah. No, I went on a rant about this. It was, it was just terrible. It's terrible. It was, yeah, I was offended uh, <laughs> with how bad it was and the fact that Snoop was involved with this thing. But you're right. I think with him, you know, to his credit, he's, he's a great entrepreneur, been able to leverage his brand across the, across the board. So he's, um, you know, yeah. Not, not much to say about that, about that one. <laughs> what? One one last one last question on what you're building, uh, Angela. Before we get to courage or cringe, that I'm curious about. When you envision this idea of uncorked and cultured at scale, you've kind of created a watering hole in a way, right, for um, people to discover that point of intersection between black culture and wine, which in and of itself is very exciting. My question is, who is it for? Okay, is it, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, tell me. So it's for. So it started off right targeting black culture because as a black woman that's really you know what i know right and that's where my audience base is however uncorked and culture actually sits on a intersection of wine wellness culture and adventure 
And that's to, mm. to connect the diaspora. And to me, that's BIPOC. That's, mm. you know, black, mm-hmm. indigenous people of color because we're all connected ancestrally. And I feel like because most people, if you talk to anyone of, and, you know, most people who you, know, you think about BIPOCs and just what they drink on a, you know, for fun, a lot won't say wine. That won't be their first, you know, that won't be their first answer. So we got to meet them where they are, right? We have this whole, with social media, we have this new generation of young people that love to travel, that love to take care of themselves. They put self-care first, you know? Um, That's super invested in empowering the culture. And I think all of that is aligned with wine, right? Because it's about elevating lifestyle. And it also provides a space of aspiration where people see themselves in these spaces. It provides... Um, you know, an opportunity for them to read articles targeting um, Black-owned and BIPOC-owned businesses that's in this space, but then also allow general market corporations to now connect with this audience, this underserved audience that we consider conscious consumers. That's how we look at our, mm-hmm. our audience is co- conscious consumers that are global. And right now, you know, you got to start small and niche and then, you know, grow from there. So I think our next, uh, well, not that I think, our next demographic that we're including into our campaigns are Latinx and Hispanic, which we're actually launching the 2021 Latinx State of the Wine Industry Summit um, this month with uh, Hispanics and Wine. Very cool. So you, you, which of course you, you know that Latinos only like margaritas and Corona beer. So obviously right. this is not going to work out, Angela. Well, I hate to break it to you, but uh, exactly. Sadly, <laughs> of course we have, some, we have some amazing. We have some amazing winemakers. Like we have um, Amelia yeah. Seha, who mm-hmm. is the first Mexican American woman or Mexican woman because she's actually not born in America. Mm-hmm. Um, who has she started off in the vineyards as a young girl since she was twelve years old. That's met her cool. husband there. She has an amazing love story and empire that she's building for her family in Napa yeah. Valley. I was in Napa recently. I don't know if I told you this story when we were prepping for this, or Jesus, if I mentioned this to you, but I was um, in Napa, hadn't been there in 20 years, and I went there, and one of the the vineyards that I visited, which was called, I'm going to forget, but it was like, it's all supposed to be like all the rage, but anyway, I visited this vineyard, and the guy was telling me the story of the people who worked the vineyard, and it was this parallel track of generations, to your earlier point, mm-hmm. right? Generations of vineyard owners... And, and winemakers and producers and marketers and all this great story and heritage and lineage. But like if you flip that coin over, underneath is this exact parallel heritage of the people who've worked the land, you know, done all of the, the, the fertilization and fermentation and did the actual labor. And it was fascinating to hear it. I'm like, man, that's got to be a story, right? It's a whole documentary right there just on that one vineyard. It and absolutely the- is. Yeah, and that's not isolated. I mean, that's kind of the reality situation, right? When you think about the wine industry, you know, here in the U.S., and I think especially in California, I mean, it's been supported by, driven by Latinos many times, like doing all, all the work that are there for generations. That's right. So in, it's, so, it's such an interesting dynamic, you know, Angela, when you describe what you're doing, because in many ways, the wine industry feels closed off as it relates to ownership of vineyards and closed off as it relates to people that are really are sort of making a lot of the, you know, the, the moves, but it's really the whole entire industry that has been supported for decades by, by, by the same Latinos that have, that have been there. In many cases, to your point, Charlie, for generations. So it is really, really interesting what you're doing. 
That's why we love the mission. We love what you're doing there and, and glad to see folks like yourself that are expanding on these communities. For sure. Yeah. Thank you. I love Thank the you. I love the expanded vision of wine too, because it is adventure. That it wine is adventure. Wine is wellness. I mean, even in like old, you know, in the Bible, right? I mean, there's like uh, mentions of, you know, Paul telling his uh, disciples, hey, if your stomach is upset, take a little wine with that. There's a wellness component. There's all kinds of connections. Wine is like, it's like a great platform to, to, to do storytelling from. So yeah, right. it's super, super exciting. Angela. We could talk about wine for a long time. And by the way, we are going to get recommendations from you before you leave of our next bottle. So be prepped for that. But are you ready to play Courage or Cringe? Yes. Okay. Very good. Jesus, even though Angela knows the game and our audience does too, we'll walk through the rules with you. And uh, I'm excited to say ladies first. So... Yeah, so Angela, as uh, as I think you know, we're gonna tee up each topic, um, give you a little bit of context, and then we'll do a courage or cringe round robin, starting with you as our special guest every time. Tell us why you think it's courageous or why you think it's cringe worthy, and uh, and yeah, and let the fireworks ensue. Let the fireworks ensue. So let's let's get going. So courage or cringe. Kamala Harris applauds student who accused Israel of ethnic genocide for speaking your truth. Uh, quotes, right? So this weekend, uh, VP Kamala Harris got herself into some trouble because of the response uh, of, or perceived lack of response to a student comment that included claiming that Israel is enacting ethnic genocide. So after speaking at the George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, to commemorate National Voter Registration Day on Tuesday, Harris took questions from the audience, right? Um, that's when a student raised a question about the money that the U.S. is providing to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Now, to this, the student said, and I quote, I see that over, over the summer, there have been like protests and demonstrations in astronomical, astronomical numbers about the Palestine cause. Just a few days ago, there were funds allocated to continue backing Israel, which hurts my heart because it's ethnic genocide and displacement of people, the same that happened in America, and I'm sure you're aware of this. Americans struggling with housing and healthcare costs goes instead to inflaming Israel and backing Saudi Arabia and whatnot. And the people have spoken very often of what they do need. And I feel like there's a lack of listening. And I just feel like I need to bring that up because it affects my life and people I really care about, uh, about life. Right now to this, the VP responded, I am glad you did. And again, this is about the fact that your voice, your perspective, your experience, your truth cannot be suppressed. And it must be heard. Our goal should be unity, but not uniformity. The point that you're making about policy that relates to Middle East, uh, Middle East policy, foreign policy, we still have healthy debates in our country about what is the right path, and nobody's voice should be suppressed on that, right? So based on that, on that response, of course, there came the outrage, right? Now, as a result, Harris' office had to do quite a bit of damage control, right, both with pro-Israel organizations that immediately began to reach out, asking for clarification, and even as part of this, they put out a formal statement from the VP's office that included setting out her record on Israel and supporting Israel-related you know, related causes. So, Angela, courage or cringe, VP Harris applauds student who accuses Israel of genocide for speaking her truth. Thoughts? So, this one was interesting to me because I kind of see both sides, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because it's, you know, I see... Both sides. So let me just look and say it that way. But I'm going to go with courage on this one. And the reason why okay. I'm going to go with courage is because she encouraged this young woman, which I watched the video, who mm -hmm. was super mm -hmm. nervous. You know, this is a very fairly intimate 
you know, crowd where she spoke and the young woman, a student, she was super nervous. Like you could tell she didn't have a lot of confidence in her and her or conviction in what she was saying. Um, And she encouraged her to, to speak her truth and to not shy away from that. And I will give her that courage point. Um, You know, Kamala Harris on that, Um, you know, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is funding an iron dome, right? That's what they're doing. That's what that's what mm-hmm. US was funding, the Iron Dome in Israel. Okay. So I'm gonna to stick to that and I'm gonna keep my comments limited because I want to hear right. what so what your you thought guys is that say. it was courageous because she is basically encouraging this young woman who um you know who maybe lacked a little bit of conviction in what she was saying to just basically speak up and, and share her point of view. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And I think I think the way that you approached it, by the way, sounds dangerously close to reasonable. So you got to be careful with that, Angela. You can't be can't be too re- <laughs> that there could be other parts of the story, and that you see both perspectives. So you know. Um, anyway, but I too follow in your footsteps in terms of looking at this as a, a kind of a you know a, a nuanced moment. I net out on cringe for a couple of reasons. One is I'm very sympathetic to the young woman who asked the question. For all the reasons you said, but maybe most of all because she's young, she's in, still in school, and she's speaking to the second most powerful person on the planet, right? So anything – and she's also speaking from her heart. Even in her, her quote, it's like, it hurt my heart, right? Mm-hmm. She's not approaching it from a place of invective or venom or anything like that. It's like, I see this issue. It hurts me. It hurts people that I love, or at least that's what I perceive – why do you support it? I've got nothing wrong with that. I think that's a perfectly fine opinion. It's the kind of thing we need to have more of. So I agree with even Kamala on that. The problem is this statement is like one of those that like has like a dot, 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 and she didn't finish it. You know, yeah. you see what I'm saying? And when you're the vice president of the country, like you got to ha- like the bar just goes up a touch. OK, I know we've knocked the bar down over the last you know couple of administrations, maybe a little bit. Um, but but the reality of it is, is that we got to have that bar a little higher. And she should have said everything that she said. I don't even have any problem with what she said. Just dot, dot, dot. Having said that, our official position is a, for the country is X, and maybe even use that as an opportunity to try to defend it or try to engage in a conversation with her as to why our position is what it is, because her record is very clear on what she's actually done. So for me, like those are all missed opportunities for her to show leadership in those positions and her to come off as um, empathetic and kind and everything else, but also like knowledgeable and in support of you know, what is the lone democracy in that entire region and somebody who is a very important strategic partner of the U.S. So for me, on balance, even though it is nuanced, even though I agree with you on that, I'm on cringe on this because I see it as a missed opportunity. All right. Um, yeah, when looking at this issue, I was a little bit on the fence. Then I went like all in. I am 100% courage in the comment, right? And the reason I'm 100% courage, it, I think it comes down to what is the orientation or what was the purpose of the conversation, right? Or why she was there to begin with. Right. She's there to commemorate National Voter Registration Day, right, which is about people being active in the political process, people sharing their voice and feeling that they have a voice in this democracy. So her comments that in response to to this student who I agree with your characterization, and I also saw the video. I think it's wasn't about it wasn't a debate conversation or a policy discussion. It was about encouraging her speaking up and sharing her truth because we all have various truths. And I think we talk so much this day and age about not censoring people. And the fact that we need to have more openness to hearing different points of view. And she's literally is encouraging her having a point of view and sharing that. At no point is she getting into a policy discussion. And as a matter of fact, even announced the fact that it is a debated policy as it relates to what we do, how we treat that, that, that region. 
that while I agree with you, historically, the U.S. has been very supportive of, of Israel in general. But even within that has sort of shifted a little bit in terms of how they view the, you know, the, the issue. So rather than getting into a nuanced political conversation with the student is about, I felt like at least the orientation, the purpose of the conversation was about encouraging a voice that needs to be heard. And the fact she's saying that, she literally says that we need to have, we, our goal should be unity, not uniformity. Right. And unity is, I think, in, the, in this context of people feeling that they could be part of the process, they can share a voice. So seeing it from that perspective, I see nothing wrong in that. And I think too many times, because I could think about this, like I remember as a, as a kid being in high school, I remember we had, and I forget what it was, it was someone that was running for like city government, right? And at the time, uh, one of the policies that this person was, he was a Republican that he, he came in, and one of the policies that he was putting in place is the fact that he wanted to I even forget the because obviously a long time ago, uh, but he wanted to basically defund city services that support young uh, girls that have kids, right? Uh, in terms of like with, you know, I'm sure it was like tied to the welfare conversation, right? And this point is like, that's not the job of the, of, of the government. It should be the job of like, let their parents, let their parishes take care of that, right? Um, and I remember hearing, and, and we were all asked in the class to basically ask a question and we all... People wrote their questions. I didn't because I was like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to, I'm like, I'm going to ask my questions how I'm going to ask. I'm not going to write it down because I felt like it just was bad. I remember getting a chance to ask the question and this guy shut me down so hard. There was like no conversation. There was no nuanced thing like, well, that's their policy. Like let their, their church deal with it and done. Next question. And it was like, all of a sudden he was treating me a 16 year old kid. Like if I was somehow his political rival. Because I raised a point that was in disagreement with him. Mm-hmm. And I remember it had such a, going back to like, what are the moments where you realize, sure. okay, I'm going to be the yeah, other party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that to me was a clearly defining moment. It's like, also a lost opportunity, I would say. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So my, my point is like, that was a, a great example of, now I'm not saying that she, to you, the way you describe it, I think it could have also been done that way, where it's a nuanced discussion. But I think the intent of this, of having a discussion with the kid was about encouraging their voice rather than having political discourse. And the reality, Kamala has a very long record of supporting Israel. So the fact that it kind of goes back to the point that we've talked about before is like, we're at such a, a polarized moment that you, even in this case, it's not even that she's against it. It's like any nuance of yes. of even acknowledging yes. that someone may have a different point of view. Like, oh, so, what, so you're not anti-Israel? Yes. Like, n- no. You look at my entire voting record. Right. I've never been anti-Israel. I like, do, I do what wanna, are you talking about? I want to bring. I want to bring Angela though on one thing that I think maybe we ha- none of us have touched on. Interestingly, is the use of the word genocide, because I think that is something that a lot of people responded to. The fact that there was this claim, well, Israel is engaging in genocide, and Kamala didn't say, well, we don't. We, the government that I represent. We don't actually see it that way. In other words, the idea of the word genocide. When you when you first heard that, Angela, like. How did that land for you, just in terms of that comment? Curious. Um, you know, to be honest with you, when you think about the, you know, Palestine and Israel and the history, it's been going on for thousands of years, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is not new, right? And it's a lot of displacement for a lot of people there, primarily sure. the Palestinians. Like, let's mm-hmm. just be real. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the death count as far as, you know, how many Palestinians have died compared to Israelis, but I'm going to probably say more Palestinians and, you know, and, and Syrians have died throughout all the upheaval that's happening there in that in that part of the world. Um, so when I hear um, words like genocide, ethnic cleansing and things of that sort, I know it still exists. I know, you know, it's happened here in America and, you know. 
I, it doesn't, I don't shy away from that if it's the reality. Yeah, I think it's one of those terms that has a lot of um, weight. A lot of weight behind it is also one of those terms that can be used loosely, right? It's both has a lot of weight, but can be used loosely. And a lot of it, frankly, I think it's what you're saying, Angela. Is some of it is in the eye of the beholder, right? In terms of which side of the of the of the argument you're with. So, I think the entire position could definitely be debated. And I, you know, I I understand the the point of people feeling sensitive. But the, the part that I just react to is that I just felt that. People merely jumping on someone that, like, if somehow Kamala had a this checkered past of whether or not, like, that's not the case in this case. Yeah. And it's so quick that you need to, like, jump down the throat of this kid, be like, no, 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 it's not genocide. And, like, that's part of the problem. That's how people disengage from the process. Yeah, but I think that there's a gray ground, a middle ground between jumping down somebody's throat and just saying, hey, thank you for your question. Really appreciate it. It's important to have your voice in this debate. In this debate. Having said that, just want to, you know comment on your on your position our position is that you know there's a definition for genocide here's what it means and we don't we feel that this uh particular ally doesn't fit that description are they perfect and, and no. that's my, but that's my point that i make yeah. it to you which is you're viewing it from the perspective that every instance should be an instance to reclarify a policy position like in this case when someone says yeah. something that really goes against it yeah or yeah the orientation here is about encouraging people to be part of the process. And I just think that yeah. our orientation about people being part of the process. Well, look, I, what I would say is everything is a teachable moment, which you illustrated in your exchange with the guy who turned you off from a whole political party. But the teachable moment, is a, that's not a teachable moment, Charlie. That's a, that's a debate on policy. You're not teaching her this is not genocide because depending on where you stand, if you're sitting there and passing right now, you do think it's genocide. You, there could be people right now that strongly believe that what's happening there is genocide. Now, we have a difference in opinion in terms of what is policy. Sure, I understand that. Right, so that's yeah. why I mean it's not a teachable moment in the sense that because now I'm correcting you what our policy is. Yeah. But that's not – you're not teaching I guess someone I, that. I guess I view teachable moments very – You simply are having a different yeah. point, of, point of view of what the policy of the country has versus what your opinion is of what's happening in that area of the world. I, I just – I view it in less of a binary way. I think teachable moments happen all the time. I mean, Angela, you're open on the show and uh, talking about wine is a teachable moment for me. Like I don't see that as a policy prescription or as a negative or as crawling down my throat. I just feel being elucidated by someone who has more experience than I do. Like I, I just – I don't think that that teachable equals like, eh, you know, you're wrong. I just – that's just not the way that I see it. And right, I think, but, and I think, I think what uh, – and I'll just say as far as what Jesus is saying is it takes it away from what the original – intent of the conversation was and right. I and I totally agree agree with that with that part of it because it's like if I'm in school and I get into a back and forth with a, a vice president that's got to make me feel very confident in the in my civic duty of even believing in American politics I mean right now we're at such a sensitive point in time mm -hmm. in American history when it comes to that sure that when you know it would have, you know it still would have been newsworthy, right? No matter what right. she would have said, it would have became newsworthy. It would have became a debate. The only difference is because she didn't correct this young woman on uh, the term ethnic genocide has made the pro-Israeli, you know, Israel organizations up in arms. But yeah, if she would have right. said something else or corrected the girl, what have you, someone else would have had an issue with it. So it's, I mean, you know, you could be loyal to your allies sure. or you can be loyal to your, your, um, your citizens, your young citizens that are really trying to engage with you and have a real honest, um, you know, expression of their thought. I think there's definitely, a, there's definitely a broader context, which is this idea of being involved in the process that we miss when we only watch one video. So mm -hmm. that, that is important. The other point though, this is my last kind of provocative question, Angela, with you. Um, how do you feel that, how do you think that that student feels right now? 
Kamala's come out and said, I strongly disagree with what she said after the fact. Like, put yourself in that young woman's shoes. I mean, okay, after the fact, like... Well, that's what she okay. said after the fact because it was like... As, released, means, as a release of the position. They asked her about the position. And that was after Israel. the fact, meaning she left that university campus and she's correct, back in correct. the White yeah, House yeah, yeah. or back in the press yeah, office, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, that young girl, if, if I was her in college... I wouldn't even, it wouldn't be as more, it would be more impactful if she would have said that to my face in the room than it would have been as a soundbite or, you know, a press release later. Because, you know, as a, I don't think the young girl spoke to Kamala and then followed up on all the news to figure out what her experience was like and what her feedback was. She probably was just in the moment and, and was excited for that moment to happen and to be able to see and speak to her and, and have that courage to talk to her and get an, a response that made her feel good than to hear a quote later that counter, counteracts that or yeah, contradicts I, that. I'm with you on that, Angela. I think she feels great right now. Because she feels yeah. heard. She got a position to a time to, to your point, there was a lot of insecurity when she was saying this and felt acknowledged having a point of view. And it wasn't about whether every element within her point of view is right or wrong relative to what Kamala feels. She basically was just acknowledging the fact that she needs to have a voice and that we should be, like, in some sense, celebrating that. Now, the fact that she agrees in terms of what the policy is relative to, the, to Israel... I think that's a different that's a different situation, and that's a different issue altogether, right? That's so. Yeah, I think that there was to me from the perspective of the students, I think they should be feeling really good about her 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 experience with it. But I just want to make sure. Didn't I? I, I thought I heard you say, Angela, you would have rather have it set, set in the in, no. to your in front no, of I you. No, I said no. I said oh, after um, the fact. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did I misunderstand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry look, if I wasn't who, clear. No, 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 no. I just wasn't listening clear. That that's that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. I mean, look, we'll never know, I guess, unless we go talk to this young woman. But I just thought that that was uh, interesting, and I wanted to get your your perspective on it. All right. Next, courage or cringe? Uh, slight a slight change. slight deviation here. Slight deviation. It's still about uh, America, though. So there, there you go. Uh, so that's the the point of connection. So Pitbull says "f you" to America critics during concert. Uh, so during a concert recently, in a video that is now going viral, and it's actually not even clear when that concert actually took place. But I think it, it happened be. here, didn't it? It was they, they said there was, something they like Chula I think Vista there was like a, Yeah, I think that's the the theory that it must have been from that concert oh, okay. Chula Vista. But yeah. I, I don't know if it's been identified or where it happened. So the Cuban American artist Pitbull, whose real name is Armando Christian Perez, which he says in a song, right, many times, made his position very clear of what he thinks about anyone who hates the United States, or as you call them, the haters. He said, to whoever the F doesn't like the United States of America, may God bless you, but F you at the same time, right? So if, you, if you don't, just, <laughs> just in case it wasn't clear. That's kind of a have you your cake and eat it too sort of uh, If statement. you don't like, yeah, if you don't like the United States of America, go back to the countries that we the F from, and you'll see how much you appreciate the United States of America, right? Now, the performer has been you know, pretty highly vocal about what it means to him to be a first-generation American that has spoken... Uh, of experience immigration from Cuba to the U.S., right? In 2017, Pitbull said that the country was built by immigrants during their parents on The View. He's also been involved in a number of nonprofit efforts focused on the Latino community in his hometown, right? So he's from, from Miami, um, which include starting a tuition-free public charter school for both middle school and high school. Uh, has also used his private plane to help cancer patients impacted by Hurricane Maria. I think those are coming from Puerto Rico, I want to say, maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it even released a song that was called I Believe We Will Win uh, during the beginning of the pandemic to inspire those affected by COVID, but then later on claimed that the pandemic is a conspiracy, calling it a scandemic plandemic. Um, so controversy kind of follows him a little bit. 
Uh, so courage or, or cringe, Angela, people calling out the American or the America haters. I'm going to definitely say cringe. I mean, cringe on so many levels. Okay, first of all, the use of the F word. I mean, like his whole, <laughs> his whole delivery, first and foremost, right? Yeah. Like Pitbull, that's, that's how, you know, it's just people. Yeah. You know? I mean, Elegance is not one of the characteristics there. I don't think he's going I mean, I'm, and I'm not a, I, I don't know his music. I maybe, you know, one or two of his songs, like from when he first mm -hmm. hit the scene, like, you know, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fan of his, so I don't even know his music and I don't have any alliance to him. But it's a, it's a couple of reasons, too, behind that. I mean, his his whole stance on it. I mean, when you think about, like, America, right? Um, I think Amanda Gorman said it best um, during her inauguration poem that she did during Biden's inauguration, mm -hmm. where she said, being American is about stepping into the past and how we can repair it. So, of course, that's going to come with a ton of criticism, right? Criticism is going to have to come with that. And and me as being a, a black American, an African-American descendant of slavery, right? It's like we, ha we are probably one of the biggest critics of America <laughs> when you think about it because we didn't come here as immigrants, you know, on free will, right? So it's like when you think about that and um, how just – looking at American and what the degrees of that looks like and everyone's personal story, personal journey, interests, perspectives, th that that's supposed to be the beauty of America. It's supposed to be that diversity of thought and being able to have that criticism so that you can make it as, as, as better as possible for us all to, you, you know, be unified. Right. Sure. Yeah. I, th I think from my standpoint, I'm not, I also don't follow his music, Angela. We have that in common. And so I have no connection there. Um, I did spend some time in South Florida, but that's about as close as I've come to Pitbull. Oh, no, I worked at Univision, who is like the unofficial. Uh, I, I ran into Pitbull. Uh, did you? Yeah, I almost knocked him down. Yeah, yeah, in an elevator. Yeah, during Land Grammys, I was walking into an elevator at the, I forget, which was uh, the Mandarin Oriental. Yeah, one yeah, of those, yeah. One yeah. of those, right? And I was on my phone, of course, yeah. walking in, and he was coming out, and I literally like almost headbutted him. And I, last minute, I was like, oh, sorry, man. So you got to walk by. He's with his entourage. Did you, did you go like Shh, out of the way, please? Yeah, yeah. I've got like, places dale. to go. Dale. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, so I can't claim any affinity to the artist. Um, you know, although, you know, on balance, I, I, you have to look at, the, to my mind, the context of his statement, you know. Um, and I think you make a really valid point, Angela, that the African-American experience is unique in its, um, you know, coming to this country against, against their will. And that is something that, you know, echoes today. And in fact, it's actually reflected, reflected in data today. We see this all the time when we, when we look at, you know, the degree to which the black community identifies with its um, ethnicity and how that compares with how they identify with their sense of being American. And there's usually like a, an offset there, right? So that's all true. But I think that he's got a very specific perspective as well. And that's a perspective of being a first generation immigrant from Cuba. And I actually went back and I looked at his quote. Uh, he, he's talked about this as, as recently as last year. And he said, the reason I can have this conversation is because my family comes from communism. They fled communism. They had everything taken away from them. Everybody got murdered. Everyone got killed. That's what he said in an interview last year, right? So his perspective is very much, I think, in a frame. And this is the this is where I agree with you and the way that he delivers it. Like, well, who, who knows what you're talking about? The, the nuanced right? way he delivered it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, who knows what you're talking about? But I think if we, if we give him the benefit of understanding his context is that my, I'm a first-generation first American in this country. My family ex escaped the dictatorship, risked everything, and everybody that I, that I loved and came from got murdered and killed. Then you can look at it from the standpoint of, wait a minute, and you're now, you know, 
you, you have c- complaints about this. Well, what about that? So in a kind of a limited universe, I actually see his point. And I think in the kind of climate that we find ourselves today, we need dissent, you know, more of it, I think. And so I think coming, you know, having this, this, uh, this statement, although it's neither to me, it's not courageous to me in a, in a strict sense, but it kind of goes over the line uh, for me to make it a courage for the show that he actually, you know, spoke out in a, a very unpopular position, perhaps, but from a very true lived experience. And he's just sharing his perspective and actually illustrating the point that you just made, Angela, about like, you know, part of what makes the country great is this ability to express your different perspectives. So I also think that there's a broader point. I'll get to it after Jesus shares his, his position on it. But, um, yeah, I, I don't follow how you get to courage based on his experience. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't yeah, I don't follow Charlie. that logic at all. Actually, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And the reason I don't follow it is that you're right. He did come from that. I would say, think about let's, let's forget what happened in, in Cuba for a second. Let's think about the, all the Jewish people mm-hmm. that were in you know concentration camps, and then some of which came to the U.S. And if the position of all those folks were that no matter what happens in the country, no one should say anything negative because compared to being in a concentration camp, it's way better. That's why I – and I hate to remember. We got, well, you know, I always talk about like this is not compared like, oh, this is just like in Nazi Germany. I'm, not say, I'm simply saying that right. your background and your experience you have from your home country, while it, it informs your POV – making a statement like this that basically anyone – first of all, like who are, the, who are you talking about? Who are the haters? Because if by haters you mean people that have an opinion that we can be better, that we can do better, that's not hating the country, right? That's simply saying that I think there's elements about how we run this country that could be better. Mm-hmm. That's people that want to be involved in the political discourse about how government is operates, how communities support each other. That's not being a hater. So I, that's why when I read a statement, like, it's all cringe in my mind. I'm like, who, who, yeah. is the, who, the, who are you actually talking about? Because I think when people read this, unfortunately, they see it as, oh, yeah, all the woke people, all the people that hate America. No, they don't hate America. These are people that actually think we could just do better. Things that there's things that we can do. And just because your background is not directly coming from a, a Cuban regime, right? Which, and even if I agree 100% with everything that, that, that is wrong there, it still doesn't change the fact that when you hear, we shouldn't have perspective, I don't think. I don't think he should be one that should be vocally saying that. No one should have a dissent because, as a matter of fact, I would say, especially because he came from somewhere like Cuba, where in the case of Castro and his regime, anyone that opposed them immediately was killed, was was sort of taken away. We live in a country where we should be celebrating people having different points of view. And by him in this position, he's not celebrating different points of view. He's simply saying, all of you, because the only way I can read this is that anyone disagrees with the country hates America. That's the way this comes off to me. Mm, there's a lot and, of, yeah. And his background actually... I understand it even less because of his background, because uh, if wanna, there's yeah. anyone that, that should celebrate having a diverse point of view sure. and the ability to be able to actually protest against mm-hmm. the government, should we someone that came from a, a, a the kind of regime like it was in Cuba, I understand what which, you're is a, which is the way that these these dictators stay in power for such a long time, because no one yeah. can, can, can have the sense. It's definitely not how I read his statement. But Angela, go ahead. Where's my logic off? Well, a couple of things I will just add. And um, one thing, first of all, I think there's a a knowledge base, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When you are a first generation American, shoot, even if you're fourth, fifth, sixth generation American, there's a lot of information we don't know, right? right? Right. There's a lot of facts about America that we still don't know that's still coming out here in 2020, especially over this pandemic, because we've we've been having nothing but time to research and (laughs) share information digitally, right? And so I feel like when you have these type of conversations, whether you're, you know, with the, I've been to Cuba and I've seen, you know, what it's like to be in Cuba. And I've seen, there's a lot of people that look like me in Cuba, but when mm-hmm. I go to South, South uh, beach Florida? or I go to Miami, yeah. South Florida, the Cubans that I meet don't look like me. 
<laughs> even though majority of the people that I saw in Cuba did. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's some nuances there that um, we don't know about. Um, that isn't a widely known about even the um, colorism and the racism that happens in a country like Cuba. I also want to, you know, underline the fact that here in America, you talk about democracy versus a dictatorship. I mean, the way that capitalism works, right? These these corporations, these, you know, dynasties or these, you know, mm-hmm. industries are little, can be considered, you know, little dictatorships, right? <laughs> Even the states in some degree. And when you think about the foundation in which the United States was, 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 you know, um, grew from, I mean, sure. Japanese people were in internment camps here in this country. How many mm-hmm. of them died? As we know, slavery is, was 400 years strong. Course, you know, it was a very deep oppression, d- death, you know, and all types yeah, of things yeah, yeah. that happened, you know, and then we were just talking about Napa. You know, the conditions there. How, who knows how many uh, Mexican-Americans or Latino people that, you know, was hurt. And then yeah. even Puerto Rico, you know, and some of the disparities there. That is in the, a U.S. territory. And so I just feel like we need to realize that America is not squeaky clean. We have to acknowledge that when you talk about criticizing America, you can look at it from all these different sides. And mm-hmm. we need to be open to have those nuanced conversations. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I read his statement as something very different. Um, and again, there, there's all of us are reading things in, right? Even Jesus, your your comment on like who are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Because having a slight different of, of opinion or whatever doesn't mean you're a hater. I mean, right. sure, that's a very favorable uh, kind of reading of what he was referring to. I mean, I, the way that I see it was precisely per, the way that I see the point that he's trying to make is perspective, meaning. You are saying here, saying these things without the experience of like, Angela, you've been like as an example to Cuba or you've experienced some other of these things. So you have something to speak from. I mean, you can infer from what he said that he doesn't want to hear somebody's opinion. You could infer that. Mm -hmm. But what you could also choose if you take the if you choose a more charitable interpretation could be you have no perspective. So get some before you criticize what you have. And that's more. Do you agree with that point? Of having perspective? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think so, that's important. So you shouldn't be able to speak on issues unless you have lived experience in uh, that perspective. I didn't say shouldn't. I said it would help you. I think you. I, I, don't, I don't think we because, should because be mandating that, what people no, no, say no, or no, don't but, say. But, but that's, that's actually his argument, right? If I follow your logic, it's like if you don't have perspective, then basically don't say anything. He's saying, look, my perspective is I was born in, in – actually, I'm not sure if he was born in Cuba, but I think his parents came. First generation American. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so he was actually born here, right? Yeah. So. And that's fair. I actually don't disagree with that. Yeah. But I also think that's the kind of bar that basically would silence any kind of public discourse unless you have people that are directly have lived those experiences. Uh, and you could have yeah. a point of view about issues that are happening here. I guess my, my argument here is let's start with when you start with the very first point yeah, about it, mm-hmm. to whoever F doesn't like the United States of America. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's way, it's way what do you broad. Mean by that? It's way broad and it's inelegant. Yeah. By the way, I don't mean share, I don't mean um, lived experience, but I do mean some level of education, some level of of becoming interested in the subject matter, some level of additional like knowledge. I mean, even that, right? So in other words, I don't believe, as you know, that you have to belong to a certain group to have an opinion about something in that, that affects that group. Right. But 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 I do believe in being informed about things. And you can be informed, right? So, right. I, I, and I think that there's a lot of. Um, but, I don't but, think. But, but what if his statement tells you that, Charlie? Like that's the part I'm not. I don't follow your argument. The statement is: whoever doesn't like this right. country, you should go back to some of the countries that we came from before you say something, right? Something like that. C- correct. Right. Do you so, agree with that statement? 
No, I, but I agree with the idea that if he's trying to make an inelegant point about you should have some perspective on what you're talking about, that that's probably a good thing, that you should learn a little bit about what you're talking about, that you should have an education about what you're talking about, lived experience, have visited, have had a conversation with somebody who comes from these backgrounds. Yeah, if, I, if, I think if he'd have said I, all that, then we wouldn't be having this Well, of course, he's in the middle of a, he's dropping F-bombs in a concert. You're not going to be having this conversation. <laughs> so and you're going to give is, me grief about Kamala Harris talking you're, policy, you're, but you want Pipple to do it. That's great. No, but it's, <laughs> It's like you're adding 98% of a, of a 2% argument, right? Okay. That, that's, 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 that's where I'm having a hard time, right? Which is when I see what, they, what, they, what, he, what he said directly versus what you're saying, they're so – like you really are giving them the full, full benefit of the doubt, which is why I'm struggling with, with well, how you're reading all that. Giving them the benefit of the doubt because of, of, what, of his, what his background is. His and background honestly, is – yeah. Go ahead, Angela. Honestly, that comment that you highlighted, Charlie, mm-hmm. when, when I read that, I didn't think – I felt like he was talking to pe- his people. Like when he says, go back to the countries that we the F from, you'll see how much you appreciate the United States. I almost feel like, is he talking to people similar to him? It I, makes yeah. me. I think so. I don't know. So, I, that, I think so it's so. kind of like, it, it's not like he's talking to somebody like myself, right? Or somebody who may be white or somebody who might be, you know, Asian or something like that, where he's like, don't criticize America. Just come back, go back to the country where I'm from and, yeah. you know, experience, you know, what my family experienced. I almost feel like. He could be talking to first-generation Cubans. I, I, I kind of read it the same way. I think maybe not just Cubans, maybe other people, you know, Colombians, Panamanians, whatever. Uh, but I, do, I did read it that way as somebody who's recently here or a generation in from being here. That is how I read it as well. Yeah. By the way, for the benefit of both of you, if you listen to one song, you listen to all of his songs. He's been playing the same song for the last 20 years. Well, it's then, literally the exact same song. Then if I listen to zero songs, by that logic, I'll have the same outcome. So I'll, yeah, I'll start go. with that. There you I'll go. start with zero songs. All right. So uh, last topic, Courage or Cringe. Playboy makes history with first openly gay cover star, Bretman Rock. Right? So Bretman Rock is making history with his appearance on the cover of Playboy's magazine uh, for the October 21st uh, digital issue. Mm-hmm. Now, the 23-year-old becomes the first openly gay male to secure the coveted spot. Uh, now, Rock is a Hawaii-based Filipino-American influencer who made a name for himself on YouTube and Vine. And then according to Playboy, he's only the third man to appear on the cover, only behind Hugh Hefner, right, the founder of Playboy. Nobody wanted to see him. And it, Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny was all over the place, dude, man. That yeah, guy, Bad Bunny. First I'm a fan Playboy, of Bad Bunny. First, first, I didn't realize it. Yeah. He was the first ever, I don't know if you know this, Angela, but Bad Bunny was the first ever, uh, I guess, urbano Latino Latino artist. in general. On Rolling Stone? On Rolling Stone, yeah. I think he's the first Latino ever on Rolling Stone on a cover. Okay. Yeah, on anyway. A cover. So. Yeah, so our boy, Bad he's Bunny. He's like the Snoop Dogg of the Latino community, Yeah, Angela. yeah, yeah. You haven't heard <laughs> of Bad Bunny, Angela. You no, gotta, you gotta, you gotta, You got to get it. You got to check I'm it out. You gotta check him out. out. I'm going to yeah. have to check him out. Now, he's not Colombian, though. Don't make that mistake like I did. <laughs> he's not. He's Puerto Rican. <laughs> he's Puerto Rican. <laughs> uh, now, regarding the cover, uh, Rock said, for Playboy to have a male on the cover is a huge deal for the LGBT community. For my brown community, for my brown people community, and it's all so surreal, right? But of course, you know, with him being on the cover, there was you know immediately the haters, right? Uh, that that uh, I think people was talking about. <laughs> now, Playboy has been uh, these are some of the comments that came out, right? Playboy has been dead for a while now, folks. Case in point as to why, right? Talking about this cover, <laughs> their appropriate magazine for this homie to be featured. I love the fact I'm homie. That's I love that. Uh, you guys have gone left. I'm out, Playboy. I've been a fan since the early 90s. I'm not anti-gay or trans or anything. This is just nonsense. By the way, I love that he says that you've gone left. Signed, because signed Pitbull. Because obviously it's someone that has never read what, what Playboy has actually ever published. Signed Pitbull. Uh, the last one I love. <laughs> now, Playboy is play gay. 
They will destroy each and every haven of masculinity. Is Playboy really still a haven of masculinity? I don't think it's like, ever been, but I don't want to give you my answer. Uh, that's hilarious. Uh, now, to this, the spokesperson for Playboy Group, which is the parent company of Playboy, mm-hmm. responded, Since posting last Friday, we've received a lot of great comments, but far too many offensive ones as well. These are the same kind of comments Playboy received when we put Doreen Dar- uh, Stern, an African-American woman, on the cover in 1971, when we featured transgender model Tula Kosi in 1991, and when we fought for abortion rights before Roe versus Wade and cannabis law reform in the 1970s. Standing for freedom and equality is in the DNA of this brand. Today, Playboy is much more than a magazine. Wow, what a statement, huh? Mm. So, Samia, courage or cringe? Where's the Angela, case presentation? Playboy making history <laughs> with first openly gay male on the cover. I mean, just on that statement alone, I'm going to say courage because they've literally, clearly have been the four forerunners of, you know, being progressive and, you know, stepping outside the box and not being and being fearless uh, when it came comes to their content. And even with probably majority of their <laughs> their viewers and their readers probably being, you know, more conservative, I would assume. But I don't know. You know, I just feel like Playboy. Um, statement alone is courageous. I feel like um, even Bretman Rock and just I didn't know who he was until you know mm-hmm. this this happened. Um, just even him being a Filipino American, you know, mm-hmm. model and influencer, what have you, and just unapologetically being himself and being acknowledged and uh, for that, I think is huge. By the so. way, I think in part is also being done because it's uh, Filipino American Month. I want to say in, mm-hmm. in October, so I yep. think it also is, is, is in alignment with that as well. I, I forgot to put that in there. Very good. Yeah. I, um, d- were you are you very familiar with the brand Angela with Playboy? I mean, like, do, do you? I mean, obviously, you know you heard of it, but you're not like I don't I read to, it. I'm not yeah, a subscriber. <laughs> yeah. No, neither am I. But but they've also changed a lot since because it's interesting you say you know a very progressive brand. Um, because I think that there would be a lot of people during its, um, its initial founding that would, you know, based on its representation of women, objectification of women, et cetera, that would actually maybe not, uh, say that, put it in that side of the camp, right? At least initially on the, on the, so I think it's interesting about that. I think they are, they've always had this, this interest kind of friction between being very progressive especially on racial issues, like super, like if you ever watched American Playboy, mm-hmm. it's a great series. It really is. It's like yeah. a, it's a docu, it's like a docu-narrative kind of series, yeah. right? Uh, I think on Amazon. Um, and it tells the story, the Hugh Hefner story. It's yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really interesting of what they did in terms of featuring black artists, black jazz musicians. At one point, they even, because they had like a Playboy After Dark show, that thing sure. that they were doing. Sure. They were being protested uh, by basically a bunch of TV stations in the South that did not want to run it because they were going to have uh, African-American jazz artists on the show performing. And he mm-hmm. was like, screw it, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Right. And end up doing well. So like they've been on the forefront. They had Malcolm X on the on the on the on the yeah, magazine. Yeah, they've they've been culturally so, there, so been but I'm very saying, progressive. Yeah, but what on they've done for, issues, from but a value on, standpoint, I'm just saying that some of the th- the criticism that they well, got in the earlier days. Yeah, forget was, values. I'm, what I'm what I what I think the issue here. Well, you can put it in values, but it's more like what they forget do. Values, what Angela. they do relative to women's rights, <laughs> right? Because that's the argument, right? right. You could say you're progressive, right. but on the one hand, you could be very progressive about Rose's way, but you're still a magazine. A little bit of the point you're making earlier, right. Angela, with Facebook, which is like. Your magazine was the main product, at least for a long time, was having half naked women. So that's this this really interesting dynamic. Not half. But but your 
product was very progressive in its stance around social issues. For sure. Yeah. So, and, okay. Mm, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, Charlie, because I feel like you keep getting cut off. <laughs> no, 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 please. This is okay. your show, Angela, if you haven't noticed. This so is about let me you. Just, let me just, I have a question for you guys, and then I have a statement depending on whatever you guys say. Okay. okay. So when you say, Charlie, um, you know, mm-hmm. what your argument about not being progressive, mm-hmm. were you going to mention it's because they have women, they're exploiting women, or they have women... Yeah, I just think that, I mean, it's not so much an issue now in terms of the prog- progressive, uh, at least mainstream progressive ideology. But back then, when it was first started, I think that there was a lot of criticism about its objectification of women as something that was, from a value standpoint, not in, in, in keeping with, say, women's liberation and other things that were happening at the time. And that's just like maybe the context of like women should be in the kitchen or women should, um, you know, satisfy their man kind of content or just the fact that they were not dressed. No, I I think the argument you're making, Charlie, is that this magazine initially was getting also pushed back because they feel exploitative to women. Correct. I think that's the argument he's making. Yeah. Okay. Not so not in terms of what their role should be within the home okay. or within the... the right? Am I so, following that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as a woman, mm-hmm. I'll speak to this, mm-hmm. that... There are, there's a large percentage of women, I don't, I'm not going to say majority, but there's a large percentage of women that do not feel exploited and they feel empowered through their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that also could be considered like progressive, right? Because, you know, typically when you think about conservative views or like, you know, Puritan views, that there is to me more kind of like oppressive and, you know, because yeah. now you have a patriarch or system telling a woman what, you know, they should do or what they shouldn't do. However, mm-hmm. I think that the women that participated in, in Playboy, and I don't know their history as far as like the contracts and things oh, of that sort, if they're being there. underpaid or mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. But I do know that women, there are women who willingly want, that's their goal in life was to be, you know, the cover on the cover of Playboy or that's, or they love right. their body and they love their the divine feminine, sure. you know, energy to be able to share that with the world. That's where they feel their power lies. And, you know, I think that just with that alone, you know, um, it's a it's a two sided coin when it comes yeah. to to women liberation and, and, you know, versus oppression. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. And I definitely think that what you just described is a very contemporary um, understanding of or, or, or expression of how progressivism is understood today. I'm just saying at the time there was, if you look at the history, um, you know, some of that pushback from those sectors that you would have defined otherwise as progressive. So my point in just bringing that up is that the brand has gone through a significant evolution over, the, over its history. And it's gone through another one recently. I actually did a little bit of research on this, that they've really been trying to position the brand, at least if you listen to the people running it, as being much broader, much more focused on women. Um, You know, they even went a time for years, like literally taking nudity off and then brought it back in 2017. So they've gone, they've, they've yeah, done they've, a, they've really fluctuated from what the brand is. I mean, they were trying to figure out like how this thing stays even relevant. Right. And how it, it also lost its relevance a long time ago. Right. And how it survives the latest, the latest sort of thinking is, well, how does it, what, what does this mean in the Me Too movement where, right. you know, ostensibly you have a magazine whose 
one of its, and I'm, I'm not going to say its sole purpose, to the same point you made, Angela, you can't say all women or many women, but some. Well, I can't say all, but I can say at some point, you know, this is – the, the, one of the chief purposes of this brand and product was to titillate straight men. I mean that was really the purpose of it. I mean if you really think about it, like objectively what it was about, right? It was about like let's create something that's going to get straight men to really want to buy it and look at it for the nudity. And so in the context of the Me Too world where we're, you know – really, you know, stressing, valuing people's agency and not, uh, you know, not taking, you know, not being exploitative and all these different things, which are objectively good. Like, it's just, it's a, it's one of those questions. I'm not saying I have an answer to it, but I'm just saying it's a question that they're wrestling with. Yeah. Look for me, maybe predictably, um, from Jesus's standpoint, I'm, I'm a cringe. I actually, I don't know if you know this, Angela, but I have a lot of experience working with, um, a lot of women who have um, difficult pasts and who have experienced a lot of uh, abuse and brokenness and uh, human trafficking, and I do a lot of this work. And in you know, in just in my own experience, and I agree that this is like a very colored experience personally. But in my experience, the the, the kind of overlap between pornography and those things, and the kind of degradation that I see in, in the work that I've done, is pretty close. It's very hard for me to overlook that. I don't think pornography, generally speaking, really builds anything. Um, I think it generally exploits, and it exploits for money. And that's why it's hard for me to get behind anything from a courage standpoint. Now, the idea—it's funny because nowhere in my analysis is the idea of this. Uh, um, what's his name? Brent? Uh, uh, Brentman? Brentman, Brentman yeah. yeah. Because it's, it has nothing to do with him for me. It really doesn't. I think it's more, it's more significant. It's at the level but you're of... But on, you're on cringe on oh, Playboy I'm sorry. as a whole. You're not... So you're yeah, not, you're I'm, not on, cr- to I'm the on cringe on the... Was- exactly, yeah. It's, it's really less to me. I think it would be a cringe. You asked a question about at what point was this a, the, the, the icon of masculinity, or maybe it was Angela who asked the question Well, we talked like every haven... <laughs> yeah. The haven I, of masculinity. The haven I mean, of masculinity. Yeah, I, I don't see I don't that. I don't, I don't see that then. I don't see it now. I mean, and, and again, we talked about this with James Bond last week. You know, here's a guy, Angela, my point was he's 40 years old. He can't make any commitments, takes no responsibilities. He's got no bonds, but his name is James Bond, right? And he's somebody who's like an, an icon of masculinity in some cases. So I don't think this is. I don't think it ever was. It certainly isn't today. I don't think it would have made a difference to me who was on the cover. But for me, I'm a cringe. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I'll stick on the actual subjects. And Charlie literally went all around it. Didn't actually address the point it's that we're to encourage or cringe. Yeah. Uh, and it. I'll just speak specifically to uh, Bretman Rock being on it. I frankly have no issue with it whatsoever. Like, no issue with it. I, look, the, the reality is as a, as a brand, who knows what they're trying to do. They've had, I know people directly that have worked for Playboy. At pretty senior levels. Oh, and, I didn't tell you this. And true they, story. Hang on. What true story? I forgot. Angela, my dad... First generation immigrant. I'm a first generation American. For like six, eight months, Playboy used to have these uh, evening dinner lounges here in LA. He yeah. worked here. He worked in one. He oh, worked for Playboy. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah. No, a personal I, connection. The um, so the brand, yeah, the brand has gone through a bunch of internet iterations um, in terms of what it is. I think the thing I like about it is that. It's history. It's I think it's history is actually really progressive, even though I agree with you. There was some some issues that people had with with what was then obviously looked at as being very exploitative. As a matter of fact, if you look at this this documentary, and I don't recommend for both of you to look to see it because it's actually really, really good. Yeah, I'll check it out. You see some of their business practices where right now, like there is no way that people that they could get away with it. No way. Like the, the how they would like rate oh, I know. who gets hired to work in these yeah, lounges, etc. Like it was like yeah. terrible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, having said that, they were always very at the forefront of social conversation. They were at the forefront of pushing um, social agendas forward. And I think to that point, this does feel very much to their DNA. 
So for that reason, I do like the move, right? And the reality is, anyone that calls this the haven of masculinity hasn't really been looking at Playboy probably for a very long time. Everyone who thinks of this as being like they've gone left hasn't looked at Playboy ever. So these are people that are commenting that really have no understanding of the brand itself. Or any history of the brand. Or they're just not reading the articles. Right. Or they're, they're not, not the article. there for or they're, that. Or they're there for the raw, like the, the other reasons, right? So if that's the case, then to me, it's like, this feels in your DNA. It feels, we're talking about it, right? It gets you back in the social conversation. That's right. So from that perspective, it feels like a win for them. Uh, and breaking a barrier that, once again, I don't see people going to the brand because I want to look at half-naked women. The reality is, if that's the first place you think of at this day and age, like, really, buddy? Well, I think uh, it's a combination of, the, the of nudity part. and celebrity, though. It's not just nudity. It's nudity and celebrity. It's like, it's like who you see naked, I think, is part of the Yeah, appeal. but that was the case a long yeah. time ago where it mattered, where people were like, oh, they're going to be on the, on the, on the actual like, cover of Playboy, some celebrity. It doesn't happen anymore. Like, wasn't that something you heard of an actual celebrity being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be on Playboy? It, no it, one cares. It wouldn't hit my screen first. It, it starts, you know, is, so I think it's lost yeah. that kind of relevance. Is the magazine even still in print? Because no. at the end of the day, no. this is a digital so. print is not, cover. No, 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 it doesn't. They stopped printing in twenty nineteen oh, or twenty. I looked yeah, it up yeah. for the for this article. It's still yeah. a it's still a publication though. Yeah, for sure. Um, so and they have a subscription it, service. Yeah, merch, subscription. And they have a stuff. bunch of uh, video content that they do, a bunch of shows they do for d- digital and and for the network. Obviously, the one that they had with. Hugh Hefner and the the three playmates. I forgot what it was called. Like the whatever the house that was like a really successful uh, show. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So they have a bunch of. It's like a whole content ecosystem they have built out. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I know they were very specific about calling it a digital cover. So I didn't yeah. know. If... But it's yeah. I think it's more because that is what the cover is yeah. rather than an actual yeah. print publication. But all right. Well, we we got close. Where we yeah. Well, d- definitely a thr- thrifty or not thrifty. What's the word? Uh, a uh, effervescent conversation, which is good. We always go for that effervescence. Angela, speaking of effervescence, uh, recommend a couple good sparkling wines or any wine that you want, and then tell people how they can follow the great work that you are doing, and everything that you're building over at Uncorked and Cultured. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll, can I give two recommendations? Anything you want. Um, your yeah. show. Your show. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, first, I will recommend Theopolis Vineyards. Um, their rosé, Petite Syrah rosé, is amazing. Yum. Um, I know you asked for effervescence, but she doesn't actually make an effervescent wine. The closest thing she has is her symphony uh, wine, which is a... Um, a blend, a blended grape. So um, her her wines are amazing. She's a a Spelman grad. She's a lawyer by day, winemaker nice. in the evening. She's amazing. Nice. The next person that I will um, suggest, just in honor of uh, Mexican American and has Latin, you know, Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month, is um, C.S. Soles, which is okay. a wine brand that was created for um, the Mexican palate. It was founded by Chris Rivera. He's um I don't remember what state he's in, but um his wines and his and you would love his decor and the branding of his um wine. It's it's amazing. He's going to be featured in our summit next week. Um and if you guys want to keep in touch, you know, find me on uncorkedandculture.com. We're on Instagram at uncorkedandcultured. Um and you know, we also have a YouTube page. So you could uh, watch some of our videos, our docu-series called Subconsciously. And one other thing I wanted to mention is um, as we expand our reach and our offering, we have this Subconsciously directory, which is on our website. And we're partnering with Hispanics and Wine to now in- be inclusive of Latinx wine brands. And these are that's wine cool. entrepreneurs that's in 
not just the production side of it, producers, but also on the retail side and the distribution side, because that is the key, right? That's the, that's the wine industry, the three, the three tiered model. And we have to make sure that we're having awareness there on both, on all three sides. Nice. Uh, Angela, do you want to just, just give the details for your summit coming up uh, next week? Oh yeah, absolutely. Sign up, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, we're actually hosting a virtual summit. So it's, Anybody can join, no matter what part of the world they're they're in. It's on Wednesday, October 13th, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, we're going to be there live for about three or four hours. Um, we have panels with, you know, a first Mexican winemaker with a vineyard in Napa Valley. We're going to have uh, Chris uh, Rivera. He's going to be there as well. I mentioned before with um, C.S. Solis. We're going to have... Um, so many amazing um, wine entrepreneurs, wine influencers, marketing. That we're going to also have the only, the only Latino master psalm. Now, Sommelier, that's a huge title. It's only one in the world, and he's going to be there. Really? Um, There's yes. only one? There's only one yes. Latino sommelier? Master sommelier. Oh, so master, master. master sommelier. Okay. So master is on a whole other level. His name is Martin Reyes. So he's Beautiful. going to be there as well. And we're going to, um, we're actually, um, you know, excited because we're going to have it super engaging where we're going to do speed networking where people can actually talk to the different entrepreneurs and attendees. Beautiful. Well, Angela, we're big supporters of your work here. It was a privilege to have you on the show. And we wish you and Uncorked and Cultured, of course, the greatest success. We'd love nothing more than for you to be the next big cultural wave of things that happens in America and beyond. So uh, what a great privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie and Jesus. I appreciate you guys. Awesome. And we'll have all the information on what Angela mentioned in the show notes of this show. If you're listening to my voice, please subscribe. Share this friend with someone you love or someone you don't. And join us again next week on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at
at the University of Tennessee. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.